0: You, Lawson, and I'm Sarah Elwood. We're the co-directors of the Relational Poverty Network, which is a collaboration among over 500 scholar activists and educators working on questions of impoverishment in the broadest sense. The network convenes conversations amongst people working in very different places around the globe in order to trouble taken for granted ideas about who is poor and why. And this podcast, titled New Poverty Politics for Changing Times, brings you a series of conversations between poverty scholars, activists, and educators. They think about how to keep questions of poverty and inequality front and center at a time when poverty is not part of the national conversation nearly enough. A foundational premise of the work is that poverty is always produced in relation to privilege and produced through multiple intersecting injustices. It's our hope that these conversations prompt you to think hard about questions of impoverishment and to collaborate with people who are working hard on these issues. Thanks for listening. Um, so the first question is, what are priority research topics on impoverishment in this moment?
1: first thing that I thought about when I saw this question was um, getting poor people access to the political system, mm-hmm. to the political process. So I think one of the key ways to change the sort of policies that get made around policy—I mean, around poverty, um, to change the discourse around poverty is to make sure that poor people always have a say in who our elected officials are and issues that they care about I mean that's the way that they get best represented and obviously I feel like in this political time there's not a whole lot of conversation about poor folks Mm -hmm. like a lot of what we are talking about is making the middle class strong which I think is really important but I think that to ignore just how tenuous the middle class even is is important so like particularly for people of color um you know, a lot of the middle class in the United States is a paycheck away from, from being falling into poverty, but that is even um, more intensified for people of color. And so I don't think that you can really talk about the middle class without also talking mm-hmm. about just how fragile the American middle class is. Yeah. Um, the lack of safety net that's available when families have uh, emergencies, when when life happens, because life mm-hmm. does happen. And when those circumstances happen to people who don't have a nest egg and when there's no safety net, then, you know, you're more, much more susceptible to being impoverished. And so I say all that to say that poor folks have to be a part of the political making process and, mm-hmm. and, and not just considered in the process, but in shaping the kinds of people that we have representing us, and the kinds of policies that are getting made, mm-hmm. and I think that there is a systematic effort to keep them out of that process, mm-hmm. right? And so we've seen it with um, the Citizens United decision, um, the Supreme Court making it easy for corporations to flood the policy the political process,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which is insane, right? So just like good, like. Back in the day, like even though our political process has been very um, deeply problematic, I teach it, I study it, I live it, Mm -hmm. there was at least more of a chance that like a public servant or someone who wanted to be a public servant who really cares about community issues could actually get into the process, into the political Mm -hmm. system. And now it's harder and harder for that to happen. Yeah. um, Because you need so much more money just to be involved in. Um, Um, politics, which is bananas. And so there's that. While at the same time, there have been policies that have made it more and more difficult for marginalized voters to vote. So um, repealing some of the 1964 uh, Voting Rights Act that are making it so that um, there are stricter photo id requirements early voting cutbacks registration restrictions so all of these different things that um states and localities can now do to you know push certain voters out of the process and by and large those voters are people of color and poor people um so i think that you know those sorts of things are like systemically and systematically being done so that poor folks aren't involved in this process um which is, I think, to our detriment, especially given mm-hmm. that the United States is becoming a less white country, yeah. more and more people. I mean, I can't remember what the year is. I just finished teaching this, but you know, at a certain point, people of color are going to be the majority. Mm-hmm. And if those folks deal with poverty more than white folks and all the mass incarceration, lack of education, all of that, then that is what the country is going to um, be faced with so yeah. I think it's not just to the detriment of poor people but I think it's to the detriment of everyone
0: yeah um, and speaking on that do you think it's kind of is it like a conscientious decision made by the government to implement this? Yeah. yeah I do I think
1: it's very I mean you know to not sound like a conspiracy theorist I'm not a conspiracy theorist but mm-hmm. I don't think it, it's um, far fetched to say that it's by design yeah you know, the, the, you know, keeping the Supreme Court, you know, <laughs> um, just one person shy of it being a more, um, liberal space. And so, yeah. you know, when we look at Shelby, Shelby County versus Holder, which, um, repealed parts of the uh, 1965 rather. So 1965 voters rights act, uh, it was a five to four vote, you know, at the Supreme mm-hmm. court level. And not shortly after that, um, Decision was made. You saw these southern states enact all of these different now new requirements around voting, and so that is by design.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, those those protections were in place because the federal government has to play a role at times in making sure that state and local governments do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not going to necessarily do it on their own. And so we saw that um, immediately following uh, following, um, um, that Supreme Court decision back in... When was that decision made? I just pulled it up. 2013. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I do think that's by design. I think that... um, you know, the same with uh, the Citizens United decision, mm-hmm. um, striking down the ban on corporations spending money on behalf of candidates. Yeah. That's not, that's not happened before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think as it's, and it's also no coincidence that those things have happened at a time of great income and wealth inequality. Mm-hmm. So economic inequality is at its height right now. And so the the folks who have the most are pushing the system in a particular way.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and it's making everyone else sort of scramble around how do we protect our rights in this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I do. I really think it's by design. You know, the same with uh, mass incarceration.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, one of the most pressing issues of our time, if we're talking about Poor people gaining access to the political system. One of the ways in which poor communities, which are large, you know, disproportionately uh, minority communities, are overrepresented. um, Mass incarceration is a part of that conversation. So mandatory and minimum sentencing laws around. You know, we know that the racial disparities exist in the criminal justice system from start to finish. So everything from racial profiling, to police brutality, to who gets convicted, to, you know, the fines that get paid, to what kinds of sentencing, we know Mm. that those things, I mean, it's just well documented. And we know that communities of color are, you know, um, Mm overrepresented in mass incarceration. So that is another way that disenfranchises poor communities and communities of color in the political system. So, you know, yes, I think that's by design, mm-hmm. you know, having laws that say that, you know, felons can't vote and whatever. But again, I think one of the things that I'm seeing that I think is really important are the sort of local and state efforts to push back against some of that. Like I was looking at, um, I'm teaching a race, ethnicity, and public policy course right now and
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: teaching the students about all of this stuff. And sometimes they're so dismayed. They're like, oh my <laughs> God, like we can't, like nothing can be done.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: But I was just looking at something that even Alabama was pushing back on around um, allowing certain felons to vote
0: mm-hmm. and
1: so you know but again like even that states have to sort of do those sorts of things it's kind of ridiculous but yeah that is um yeah. that is the case.
0: question who should poverty researchers or teachers be collaborating with
1: the communities that they um the communities and people that they work to make policies and conduct research around Mm -hmm. so that's one of the things that i was kind of sitting here working on this morning and i wanted to to be more thoughtful about in our conversation so a couple of points i think that um Research and policy making can't continue to happen in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. I think that there are amazing efforts that are underway that are um, making sure that that doesn't happen. But there's still too much is this sort of uh, more paternalistic model around you know, all these poor communities and Mm -hmm. we know what's best for them and we're going to figure this out. And maybe with a little input from them would be nice if some of their folks can even make it into the classes um, that we're teaching and be involved in the research process that um, is underway in the policymaking process, which we know when we think about who those researchers are and who policymakers are, First and foremost, they're not representative of mm-hmm. the larger demographic in the country, which is a problem. Um, so mostly what that looks like is white and middle-class folks engaging in policy making um, and research that's impacting yeah. people of color, right? Um, so that's, that's not okay. And so I think there are things that can be done at that at those levels to include the voices of folks who are not um represented like research teams need to be a lot more thoughtful about who's helping do that research same with the policy making process um and it's so funny to me that that seems so basic but that i have to even say that is a problem and there are people who will defend those decisions Mm -hmm. right um They'll defend what their research teams look like. They'll defend what, you know, who's involved in the policy making process. Um, They can't take the pushback around who are these policies really representing and is it using more research that's been (laughs) problematically conducted and and what have you. So I feel like it's just such a vicious cycle, honestly. It's like, you know, this very top-down model, it just doesn't work. Um, And yet people continue to use it. And so I think the first place to be in conversation is in our own backyards. Mm -hmm. So, you know, being more thoughtful, more um, proactive about including students of color, um, Mm -hmm. researchers of color, um, other voices, other perspectives in the process. And everyone isn't going to do that, right? Like, you know, academia is... um, full of amazing people but also full of big egos so um you know the idea that you know we know what's best is very prevalent I think which is really unfortunate I mean I grew up poor and so even I who you know know poverty very intimately Mm -hmm. don't feel that way and yet I look at my colleagues who don't know a damn thing about poverty beyond studying it and are quite arrogant about it and so I think that um, that's a real problem and I think the second place is so in our own backyards, in our own institutions, in our own classrooms um, in our own research teams, when you get grants who are you including in in the research team going out and collecting data Mm -hmm. and you know, are you also thinking about that person's career, right? Like, you know that, like, we know that, like, students of color, graduate students of color don't get the same kind of mentoring or whatever. I mean, so, like, that you're not just using them to be, you know, gain access to the community yeah. and then, like, it's over after the research is done. And so I think mentoring, inclusion at that mm-hmm. level, but I also think at the community level. So, um decolonializing data and research, right? Mm -hmm. So actually having the community have a say in their own, (laughs) um, about their own experience. And I get that everyone can't do community-based participatory research, right? It's Mm -hmm. very time consuming, um, especially for those of us who are tenure track. When you got a short period of time, it's hard to get involved in that way. But when you're conducting research to be including it wherever you can Um, and also noting that that is a limitation of your scholarship Mm -hmm. right that is a limitation of the work that you're doing that you don't you can't get out and do that kind of work but you recognize that it's important Um, I think there are some really good um, models so, um, one of the things when you're talking about priority actions around like um, resisting uh, exclusionary trends is um, one of the things I wrote is like working with um, not just for and on behalf of communities of color to translate community needs into policymaking. Mm-hmm. And so, there are, I think, really good examples of that. So, one of them is the so, there are a couple of, couple of examples that I thought were really great. One is um a more university driven approach mm-hmm. so um the Kerwan institute for the study of race and ethnicity at ohio state university is insane like mm-hmm. um it was started in 2003 it's an interdisciplinary engaged research institute um Its goal is to connect individuals and communities with opportunities needed for thriving by educating the public, building the capacity of allies, social justice organizations, Mm -hmm. organizations, and investing in efforts that support equity and inclusion. It's so much of everything that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, so much of what needs to happen around um, poverty, right? And so working with communities, Empowering communities using all that. I mean, I think academia. I mean, obviously, I'm an academic, I love education, I mm-hmm. love this space. Are really important tools and an and important part of what could happen around decreasing poverty.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: think this is one of this is this model is like one of the ways that that could happen. And, and like the academic institution thinking of itself as basically responsible for and a part of the community around it Mm -hmm. right like not sort of a us and them you know i i mean one of the things and you know i hear this and i'll just call out the university of chicago real quick um Mm -hmm. you know like there's this like notion that we're located within these communities like Mm -hmm. the university of chicago is located on the south side of chicago um which is you know primarily black and increasingly hispanic community Mm -hmm. um but don't feel a part of that community. You know, like I still talk to people who are being educated in classrooms there where it's just kind of like, there's a, a, they're in a bubble Mm -hmm. within that community and it's being sort of framed that way. And so I think for instance, this Ohio State initiative is a really good example of that. I think the University of Washington's new population health um, initiative is a good example of that around a specific topic, you know, so what I like about the the Ohio State program is that it's inclusive, right? It's Mm -hmm. doing all these different things. And here at the University of Washington, I was just looking at um, the Population Health Initiative. And so I think that that's a good example. And I think that one of the things I like about the Population Health Initiative are the um, pilot grants or the yeah the pilot research grants. And so it's about helping faculty who want to work together to do sort of um, um, it's a $50,000 uh, seed uh, pilot research grant that will help faculty work together to do mm-hmm. a population based research. And I think that that is that is a really interesting and cool way for maybe um faculty and even students who are underrepresented um, to get involved in underrepresented communities yeah. um, directly. So I think that that's a really great example of you know a way to take what we have um, access to and bring it to bear uh, within communities. Um, and then the other example that I thought was really interesting and important to me was sort of what we can do as universities and certain terms of sort of building these collaborations with community but what i also see community doing with with each other and so um the coalition of communities of color Mm -hmm. and so it's um it's a way that it's about empowering communities of color to get engaged in research and to um, the research and policy making. And so one of their goals is to decolonialize data and research. Mm-hmm. And so you see them sort of working together to be a part of the uh, research process. Um, they've got, um, they're graduating people, taking them through this, these programs and, you know, just, I mean, I, I think it's a really fascinating um, mm-hmm. model that I think it's important. I'll stop there, I could just <laughs> keep
0: talking. Yeah, I'll stop. Okay. Yes. Uh, so the next one, um, what are priority keywords for critical poverty studies in this moment? So, like words priority we should be talking about. Priority keywords
1: in mm-hmm. mass incarceration. You know, the United States incarcerates, they incarcerate 2.3 million Americans, disproportionately people of color. Yeah, I'm going to double check, but I know it's some insane amount like that, like that we're, oh yeah, yeah. We are 5% of the world's population, yet we incarcerate nearly a quarter of the world's prisoners. Mm. So a quarter, so almost a quarter. So I think that has to be a really big part of poverty reduction is ending mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. Um, It disenfranchises those communities most affected from the political process. It is a public health issue Mm-hmm. Um, not just for those who are in prison, but those who are left behind. I mean, increasingly, research is showing the public the health disparities that exist among um, incarcerated loved ones. Um, it takes a financial toll on communities by taking those earners out of the community as well as uh, taxing those communities with... Um, the financial obligations that are associated with being tethered to the criminal justice system. So we see, you know, work done here at University of Washington um, by people like Alexis Harris who sort of look at that. Um, It takes another financial toll with respect to just sort of trying to support loved ones who are incarcerated, Mm -hmm. putting money on books, taking phone calls, visiting them. You know, and I think it takes a psychic and spiritual toll on those communities as well, you know, what it does to children to um, have their parents incarcerated. Like, um, so one, so the number of children who are, um, who have parents incarcerated. So I was looking at that the increase in the number of women who are jailed has increased 14 fold since 1970. And 82% of those women are for nonviolent offenses, so mainly drug and property crimes. Nearly two thirds of them are women of color. That's insane. And nearly 80% of those are mothers. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. what that means for those kids, um, yeah, I just I can't even imagine, frankly. Um, yeah. I think that that is that's crucial when you look at um, these young people who like for black men for instance
0: you know we're looking at being dealing with the uh, mass
1: incarceration as a part of the life cycle or the life course for young black men um, that's a real problem
0: mm-hmm.
1: just that that expectation is there that. That at some point, um, they're going to come into contact, too many of them are going to come into contact with the criminal justice system in some way or another. I think that it's a public health issue, it's a a public safety issue, but also I think it's a deep emotional and spiritual one that... that has to be healed and has to be addressed. Mm -hmm. You know, we're teaching entire generations now how to feel about themselves with respect to this. Like, what does that mean for one's identity? What does that mean for one's sense of self-efficacy and self-worth and Mm -hmm. self-esteem and just humanity? And so I think that there are the statistics, but it's putting a real person and a real face to those Mm -hmm. realities. Um, Yeah, so I think that that's really important, is ending mass incarceration. Uh, I think other key poverty um, keywords are um, radical, cross-racial, ethnic, religious collaboration.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So I think that those who are benefiting the most from inequality (laughs) Are really savvy at dividing everyone else
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and um, I think we saw that in the role that Russia played in the 2016 election mm-hmm. they literally used those divisions against us um, through social yeah. media and so I think that we're seeing it happen on the ground it's happening mm-hmm. communities are doing this historically divided communities are finding ways to work together and realize that they have more in common than not. And I think that academia needs to be involved in that. I don't think that we want to be on the periphery or on the outside of that. Um, I think that us figuring out how to study it, mm-hmm. um, how to get our students involved, is what 21st century education is going to look like. you know a lot of students come to college yes because they want jobs and especially now are afraid of finishing college without getting jobs but particular students the data is there also, come to college because they want to make a difference in their communities. Mm-hmm. And so, to take those kids and bring them into a college classroom that then divorces them from their communities is hugely problematic. Mm-hmm. And so, that shouldn't be sort of extra work that those students have to do. I think it needs to be work that we're just sort of finding ways um, to bring to the table and make a part of the education process, both mm-hmm. for the professors who are doing that work and making sure that that gets counted as part of the tenure and promotion process but also for the students who want to be involved in education in that way Um, so I think getting involved with those kinds of initiatives and again I found some really great ones that I think are really cool um, Mm the cross-cultural collaborative of Pierce County. Um, Mm -hmm. It was formed to innovate and implement effective collaborative approaches to reducing health disparities across racial, ethnic, cultural, and linguistic lines. And so again, like working uh, across racial, ethnic, and religious groups. Um, The United Congress of Community and Religious Organizations in Chicago, 12-member groups serving various ethnic, cultural, and human rights organizations. I mean, I think, I mean, one of them that I found that I thought was really cool, um, the Infant Mortality Reduction Initiative in New York City. So you getting together African-American and Latino groups to reduce um, infant mortality. So I think those kinds of on-the-ground initiatives to address social problems related to poverty and mm-hmm. having us be aware of those and involved in those, whether we're researching them and, and researching, we researched the, um, we, and we researched the school to prison pipeline. How about researching the social movements and social justice to policymaking pipeline, mm-hmm. right? Like we know that those kinds of initiatives, help bring about policy change and practice, practical change. So practice, change in practice. And so having us be aware of what works and doesn't work in that way as part of understanding policy and social change, I think is really important. We don't wanna mm-hmm. always be studying things sort of after they've been done.
0: Yeah,
1: um, understanding them in the process, I think is important. I think community building and organizing. Are the mm-hmm. policy are uh, keywords in in poverty? Um, yeah, just like really working with grassroots community organizing. I think that is going to be the biggest thing that changes a lot of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the more that it stays at the top level, the mm-hmm. more fucked up it gets, and mm-hmm. I've seen that in my short lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, I ain't old, but I ain't young either. I'm not young, but I'm not old either. But I just feel like not enough of the people at the top care or even understand what's happening mm-hmm. um, on the ground. And so really supporting community building and organizing, I think, is important. And there are tons of initiatives that are happening around that. Another key word around poverty uh, right now is affordable housing.
0: Yeah,
1: I don't think you can talk about poverty without talking about housing and food insecurity. You know, I know firsthand and all too well what not knowing whether you're going to have a place to live feels like. And again, that's a policy issue. It's um it's a, you know, we can think about the statistics, but when we when we think about, like, real people and what that looks like, you know, we know that people who grew up in, with families who owned homes experience fewer health disparities, mm-hmm. right? So it's not just a policy issue, it's one that, like, quite literally affects biology, right? So it's one of the ways that, you know, Our um, biology interacts with our environment and so Mm -hmm. I think you know getting more work done around making housing affordable is going to be really critical I was looking up some stats 48% of renters and 24% of homeowners spent 30% or more of their income on housing and so we don't want to see people generally spend more than thirty percent of their income on housing, and so we know that renters experience more housing cost burden. And yeah. so I think that that is um, a really important issue.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Access yeah. to food and water—it mm-hmm. seems really basic to have to say that, but Flint is real.
0: Yeah,
1: right. The privatization of public services is a real. Fucking problem and nightmare. Make public services public, so mm-hmm. that those are keywords. Like good old fashioned public services. Water should be a public service.
0: Yeah, you know,
1: a pup, something that's available to people. So yeah, twenty fifteen, almost thirteen percent of U.S. households experience food insecurity. We know that uh, people of color mm-hmm. and uh, low income families and households with children are overrepresented. Um, and so, yeah, one of my keywords was deprivatize public services. Mm-hmm. Um, fund education, fund public education. Mm-hmm. Not charter schools, public yeah. education. Um, I think other keywords are intersectionality. Mm-hmm. So, particularly when we think about mass incarceration or even. Um, criminal justice policy and issues. We often think, for instance, we are the first place that most people go is black men. Um, but I just read the stats about, you know, the increase in women of color who are incarcerated. And we also know some more interesting work just came out about how much more vulnerable women of color are actually compared mm-hmm. to men of color around experiencing police brutality, mm. right? And so I think, you know, just really always looking at this work, looking at research and looking at policy making, and looking at poverty with an intersectional lens is really important. So policy poverty initiatives that work for men are not going to necessarily uh, deal with the issues of women who, you know, particularly women who are mothers, um, women who are, tend to be more likely to be caregivers, those sorts of things. So I think intersectionality is critical. mm mm-hmm. Public and community health are keywords. And then lastly, um, I think civil rights are human rights. And so I think to just constantly come back to that, mm. what we're asking for is not that radical, it's just humane.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, it's just humane. And while we're busy, sort of, I don't know. Um, Fixated in these really in ways that for some of us are privileged to be sort of engaged in these issues almost like armchair activism right like people who sit and watch tv and complain about everything and don't do a thing about it yeah. i think it's similar around these issues i think that they're important to us right? Like people like you and me, they're really important. But I think it's always important to remember that importance is not urgency. Mm -hmm. And so for people on the ground who are experiencing being racially profiled in their communities, that because their communities are more heavily policed, um, who are experiencing losing their children to the child welfare system, because the child welfare system is more heavily located in communities of color. I think for people who are experiencing food deserts and for people who can't find affordable housing and who, you know, all of those sorts of things, there is an urgency around these issues mm-hmm. that I think um, needs to always be there and mm-hmm. and just sort of present in, in what we're doing and how we're doing it.
0: Yeah. 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 Awesome. Thank you. That's You're welcome. Hit a lot of words there. <laughs> 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 I think that's perfect. Um, are you are you teaching today or are you working from home I'll today? Teach tomorrow. Teach tomorrow. <laughs> cool. Well thank you so much. Um that's yeah, you're welcome. all the questions I have. And thank you for the time. Well, if you have any
1: other ones or anything comes up,
0: just shoot me an email. Okay. I will do. Uh, thank you so much. All right, okay. you take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye.